Well, as I alluded earlier, this morning launches what we're calling Prayer Week. And what that means is that we are going to take some time to think about prayer and to talk about prayer and actually do prayer. And this is a very important week in the life of our church. Maybe as it we do it every year. We will increase in the activities of what we do, but here's sort of a snapshot of what we're looking at for the week. This week and next week, I will preach on prayer, both a theology and a methodology on prayer. Again, I want to do my best to help give you tools to inspire you and compel you and and help you the best I can from God's word to know how to pray and to wrestle with the the battle of, of how to pray and especially in those times when we desperately do not want to pray. So we will preach on prayer. We'll do corporate prayer together as a church. And then next week um, on the 23rd uh, at 9 a.m., we usually do equipping classes. My apologies to those who teach those classes. This is the first time they are hearing that. We will get better at this. But next week, uh, equipping classes will be canceled, postponed, rescheduled for the next week. And we'll actually meet here in this room and we will do corporate prayer together as a church family. We'll take some concentrated time to do that. And so I encourage you, even if you're not in one of those equipping classes, I encourage you to come here and pray with us as a group and we'll do corporate prayer together and we will pray for the mission and vision of our church. Again, what we want this church to be is a launch site for global ministry. We want to be a healthy church that changes the world. We want to, we, we believe that what we do in life causes ripple effects into eternity. And so we want to pray. We want to plead with God to work in our church in such a way that the only explanation is a sovereign God doing the supernatural. So I'm, I'm pleading with you, imploring you to join us next week at 9 a.m. here. And we will pray. We will beseech the God of the universe and ask him to work in our church in a profound and even unprecedented ways. So that's the plan. There will also be a prayer guide that we will send out via email and we'll have hard copies as well, sort of a trifold thing that will sort of explain how to pray going forward as a church. Again, the God advances his plan through the prayers of his people. And so we will give you very specific practical ways to pray for the church body here at Christ Community. Speaking of prayer, uh, let me pray one more time, and then we launch. Well, Lord, we're grateful for your plan, and it is a foolproof plan. It is a perfect plan. It is a plan with no wrinkles. From your perspective, from your end of things, no setbacks. It is flawless and beautiful. And, O Lord, from the perspective of heaven, O Lord, it is a finely, perfectly woven tapestry that unfolds in human history. But from our end, O Lord, we see the hanging threads, we see the loose ends, and we confess, O Lord, that at times we are tempted to despair. We confess, O Lord, that we are people of weakness. We gladly, we boast right now in our weaknesses, O Lord. We come to you with no airs, no pretensions no illusions about who we really are. We come to you as redeemed sinners with all of the struggles that accompany those who still have unredeemed flesh, those who live in non-glorified bodies. We come to you with all of those struggles and we, we, we know that they are open and naked before you. And so, Lord, as we think about prayer, as we talk about prayer, I pray that you would inspire us and help us. Lord, this is hard work. Prayer is supernatural work. Would you help us to be a church who prays? Oh, Lord, it is. We wove it, oh, Lord, for your sake. We wove prayer into our, into our very 
mission statement of who we are, Lord. We want to be a church who prays with urgent passion for the impossible. So, Lord, please help us to be a church who does that. Open our eyes now to pray and that you would be exalted. In Christ's mighty name, amen. Now, if it is astonishing that God uses people to advance his plan, and that is astonishing. It is doubly astonishing that God advances his plan through the prayers of his people. That's astonishing, isn't it? You see, the reality is that God loves, he loves to bless his people and use their lives to make an impact for eternity. But even more than that, he loves to bless his people in answer to their prayers. That's astonishing. That God has designed the fulfillment of his plan be through the prayers of his people. That is shocking. Because what that does is raise the question, why do it like this? Why hardwire prayer into the process? I mean, why doesn't God just take care of it by himself and we stand by and, and, and watch without our prayers? You see, the question is, what is it about prayer that makes it so significant in the scheme of eternity? What is it exactly about prayer that makes it one of the biggest big deals in the Bible? Because if you think about it, prayer doesn't actually make any sense. In fact, it actually looks kind of ridiculous. There you are, on your knees, papers, tasks piling up on your desk. And there you are in the silence of your room, in the obscurity of your room, praying to someone that you cannot see, launching your prayers into the stratosphere, and that is supposed to change the world. Are you kidding? That looks like the essence of inefficiency, the essence of unproductivity. I mean, how does that help or change anything? And yet therein lies the answer. You see, behind the seeming foolishness of prayer is the very reason why God commands us to do it. You see, the insane genius of prayer is that prayer is God's way of making sure everybody knows the victory alone belongs to him. And again, this morning, as I said, this morning launches prayer week at Christ Community. In other words, again, as I said, we're going to take two weeks to talk about prayer and to think about prayer and to actually do prayer and plead with God in prayer. Why? Why are we going to do that? Because life is war. That's why. John Piper says that we will not know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. That our failure in prayer is owing to the fact that it is not merely for our own personal devotional delight, but that prayer is a wartime radio with which we ask for what we need as the church advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. In other words, prayer is the urgent blood and guts act of calling the headquarters of heaven for everything that we need as the kingdom of Christ advances 
in the world, which means prayer is not a game, nor is it optional. Rather, it is an instrument of warfare through which, which God puts his matchless supremacy on display. And you could tell that I kind of like to refer to prayer as paralyzed force. And what I mean by that is that when you pray, it doesn't look like you're doing anything significant. It doesn't look like you're doing anything profound or powerful or efficient. I mean, it looks unproductive. It seems passive and lifeless. From If someone took a picture of you praying, it looks like you're paralyzed. And yet what it really is, is God's instrument through which he does the absolutely impossible. And so again, this morning, I'm going to preach on prayer. This morning and next week, I'm going to preach on prayer, both the theology of what prayer is and the methodology of how prayer works. And not that I am ever given to being overdramatic, but overdramatic though it may sound, I really believe that these sermons could be among the most important sermons I've ever preached here during my time at Christ Community. And the reason for that is because prayer is not some mystical act of piety where we think we hear God's voice, but rather it is the mechanism through which God advances his plan. And I get it. I get that for most of us that prayer not only sometimes feels difficult, but sometimes prayer even feels downright pointless. I've been there, wandering of mind, deadness of heart, coldness in affection for many. That is exactly what prayer can feel like, and yet I am here to help. And even though I might not be the best prayer in the world, I want to free you this morning. I want to free you and to grip you and to compel you and to instruct you from God's word the best I can to participate in the most loving and dangerous cause in the universe called the Great Commission through the instrumentality of prayer. So let's begin. If you have notes, here's where I'm going this morning. I want you to see 10 descriptions, biblical descriptions of what prayer is. Ten biblical descriptions of what prayer is so that you can pray in a way that makes an impact for eternity. Because why else would we pray unless we wanted to impact eternity? Ten, five this week, five next week, descriptions of prayer that you must know so that you can pray in a way that makes an impact for eternity. And so ready or not, here we go. Biblical description number one, a definition of prayer a definition of prayer. Because I could be wrong, but I really believe that the place to begin is actually to define what prayer is because I think one of the reasons why it's so hard for people to do is because they don't actually know what prayer actually is. Now, all Christians, all Christians at least know the basics, right? People know that in its most pure, simple, distilled form, prayer is talking to God and conversing with God and communicating with God. It's all very devotional and relational, and that's exactly right. That is precisely what it is. And yet I really believe that this morning we need to put some meat on those bones. Because you think about it, when you pray do you realize what you're doing in that moment? I mean, what, what, what actually is transpiring there when you pray? Because you see, when you pray, what you're doing in that moment is worshiping. Prayer, no matter how you cut it, what it is, is worship. You see, the one to whom you pray is the one you are worshiping 
as God. And you see, when you pray, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but when you pray, you are seeking two things from God primarily. When you pray, you are seeking power from God and you are seeking pleasure in God. Power from God to do what he commands and pleasure in God to satisfy your soul. That's what you're looking for, isn't it? When you pray, you are seeking God's glorification and your satisfaction. Are we not? And yet my question is, what if prayer was the sweet fusion of all of those things combined? In other words, what if prayer was that act of worship whereby you seek sovereign power from God by which he is glorified and supreme pleasure in God by which you are satisfied? What if that was prayer? Where you sought supreme pleasure power, sovereign power from God by which he is glorified and supreme pleasure in God by which he is satisfied. What if that is what prayer is? And that is exactly what it is. That's an act of worship where you seek two things at the exact same time, sovereign power from God and satisfaction in God. That is prayer. It is that act of worship. And so we need to see this from the scriptures, which brings us to the second biblical description, number two, the purpose of prayer. The purpose or the design or the reason or the goal or the aim of prayer. Because the question is, is what I just said actually true? Is prayer actually an act of worship where you seek sovereign power from God by which he is glorified and supreme pleasure in God by which you are Satisfied? Can that be substantiated from the scriptures? And I believe that it can. And yet before I prove that, I just, I just want you to consider again right now in these moments, I want you to consider again the staggering reality of the Christian life, namely that it is not merely difficult. It is impossible. It's impossible. You see, it is impossible on your own, by yourself. That's exactly what the scriptures say. The Christian life was not designed to be achievable by human means and power and abilities. Rather, it is profoundly supernatural. And I really believe that it's very possible that one of the reasons why we typically do not pray as often or as fervent or as passionate as we should is because we simply do not believe this. We do not believe that all we are on our own, by ourselves, are spiritual cripples and beggars of grace. And yet that is exactly what we are. Any estimation of ourselves that's higher than that, we are deluding ourselves. And any estimation of ourselves that's higher than that leads precisely to a life of Bibleless, prayerless independence. And you just need to know that the impossibility of the Christian life, that's not accidental. That's by design. That's the way God made it to be. Because if you read the New Testament very carefully, you'll see that even the most basic goals of the Christian life, get this, they are unquestionably beyond our reach. 
All of the changes that we long to see in ourselves and in other people can only happen, can only happen by a sovereign work of grace. And yet we are commanded to pursue those very things. We are called to labor for that which is God's alone to give. And that is why we pray. And prayer is the sovereign power from God by which he is glorified and supreme pleasure in God by which we are satisfied. And so let's prove it from the Bible. Look first in your notes. I have it there on your notes. Psalm 50 verse 15. Psalm 50 verse 15. And I want you to notice the connection between your desperation, your deliverance, and the display of God's glory because those things are connected. Psalm 50 verse 15, God speaking. And he says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. Call upon me. I shall rescue you and you shall glorify me. Did you hear it? Did you hear the connection between calling on God and glorifying God? God commands you to call upon him in the day of trouble. Have you ever had one of those? A day of trouble, a day of distress. That's where you're beyond your means. You're in way over your heads. You're desperate. You're overwhelmed. You're fearful. You're anxious. You have more things to do than time in which to do them. It is the day of distress when you are beyond your strength, situations beyond your strength, beyond your control. And God says, in that day, call on me, cry out to me, ask me for things. And what will he do in response to prayer? Notice, notice very carefully, I shall rescue you. And the result of that is that you will glorify me. You see, God wants to be glorified in your life. And he especially wants to be glorified in response to your desperate, needy, urgent, vulnerable, humble, bankrupt prayers. You see, God wants to be displayed in your life as the supreme treasure of the universe. Did you know that? God wants to be displayed in and through your life as the supreme treasure of the universe. And he especially wants to be displayed as that through the humble, needy, urgent prayers of his people. So my question for you this morning is, how are you doing glorifying God? which means I'm asking, how are you doing being needy and desperate and urgent and vulnerable in prayer before the God of the universe? Do you call upon God in the day of trouble? Do you daily, hourly, minutely call upon God with all of your anxieties, with all of your burdens, with all of your weaknesses, with all of your inadequacies? Do you call upon God because you can and you should and you must? But there's more, there's more evidence for our definition. Look at John 14 in your notes. John 14, which as you know, is the final moments of Christ's time with his disciples before he is betrayed and arrested and crucified and killed. And in this sober moment, he says to them, and whatever then you should ask in my name, I will do it. That the Father may be glorified in the Son 
Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it for you. Notice, notice the explicitly stated design of prayer. You ask him for things, he will do it. What reason does he give? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. See, the deepest motive in God for why he answers your prayer is to display the infinite worth of glory in and through his son. That's what drives God. That's what moves God. That's what motivates God to answer your prayers, the display of his glory. And yet there's another component. There's another component that you have to see. Look in your notes at chapter 16. 23 and 24, this is, this is so fascinating. Same scene, same conversation. And he says, truly, truly, again, keep in mind, he just said that the purpose of prayer is the glory of God. Listen to what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever then you should ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. Why? For what purpose? To what end? That your joy would be made full. Did you see the purpose of prayer? Ask and you, you shall receive for your highest joy. The purpose of prayer is our highest joy. But that doesn't make sense because Christ just said in chapter 14 that the purpose of prayer was the glory of God. So which is it? Which is it? Is it the glory of God or is it the, is it the, is it the fulfillment of our highest joy? Which is it? And the answer, you know, is a profound and universe-splitting yes. Yes, that's exactly what it is. It's not either or. It's both and. Prayer is where we seek power from God by which he is glorified and pleasure in God by which you are satisfied. Don't you see? The way to live for your highest pleasure is to live for the glory of God. Or put it this way, the more God is glorified, the more you are satisfied. And how both of those things happen simultaneously in your life is through the mechanism of of prayer. I think we call that a win-win, don't we? You get the power, you get the pleasure, he gets the praise. Everybody wins. And so the implication of this is staggering and you can feel it, can't you? Because if the purpose of prayer is the fullness of your joy and it is, then that very likely means that the reason for your joylessness is because of your prayerlessness. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And I'm going to ask you something, and it's going to sting just a little bit. But my question is, are our packed calendars and psychotic attachment to our smartphones really fulfilling our deepest hunger for life in Christ. Now, I've got a smartphone too, and I play Fruit Ninja just like everybody else, but we need to wake up this morning. We need to wake up. We need to wake up at how much nothing we spend our time doing, because you see, apart from prayer, without prayer, if we don't pray... 
All of our scurrying about, all of our talking, all of our wall-to-wall activities and relational hangouts amounts to nothing. For most of us, the voice of self-reliance is 10 times louder than the bell that tolls for the hours of prayer. And yet the voice cries out, does it not? You must answer that text. You must read that email. You must finish that project. You must go to that event. You must, you must, you must, you must, you must. And yet the bell still tolls softly in the background. Without me, you can do nothing. You see, we pray. Not merely because that's just what Christians do but because it is the means to which God does the absolutely impossible. Which brings us to the third description of prayer, number three. Third biblical description, number three, the sovereignty of God and prayer. The sovereignty of God and prayer. Yep, we're going to go there. <laughs> and, and you'll forgive me what I'm about to do here. In fact, what I'm, actually what I'm not about to do. You see, although I am going to talk about the relationship between the sovereignty of God and prayer, what I'm not going to do is ev- answer every single question you have about the sovereignty of God and prayer. That's impossible for one sermon or a series of sermons. But there is debate about that, and, and you know this. Because some people say... Some people say that if you believe that God is absolutely sovereign over everything, if you believe that God has predestined every moment of every event, if you're going to insist upon saying that God has predestined everything that comes to pass, if you're going to believe that, then it's pointless to pray. It's pointless to pray if God has predestined everything. At least that's what some would have us to believe. And to be sure, that sounds like a logical argument, but that's not very theological. I mean, that might seem reasonable on the surface, but that's not very biblical. You see, the objection doesn't work. It doesn't work because it assumes that the sovereignty of God and the prayers of his people are incompatible, that those are enemies of one another, that you can't have a universe in which you can't have a universe in which God is sovereign and have the responsibility to pray, that you can't have a universe in which those two things exist. And yet that's exactly what the Bible says. Because the Bible is clear and undeniable. God has predestined, predetermined everything that would ever come to pass. And yet, we are called to pray. And it's a sin if you don't. (laughs) Well, how does this work? It works beautifully. It works beautifully. You see, we pray, get this now, we pray because God has not only designed the ends, but the means to those ends. What I mean is, God has a plan that will come to pass exactly as he designed, and one, one of the means through which what he ordained will happen is through the prayers of his people. You see, again, it's it's another case of both and, not either or. It's not God is sovereign or we pray. It's God is sovereign and we pray. Because prayer is the means through which God unfolds his plan in human history. For instance, Christ commanded us to pray, did he not? Your kingdom come, your will be done. He commands us to pray that. But 
my question is, why would he do that? Isn't his kingdom going to come anyway? Isn't going to, he going to do his will apart from our prayer? And yet the thing is, he wouldn't have asked us to pray that his kingdom come or his will be done if he didn't mean for our prayers to be the instrument through which those things take place. I mean, of course, of course he's going to do those things, but he is hardwired into the process our prayers to unlock the power and promises of God. Or take Isaiah 36 and 37. The war machine of Assyria shows up to destroy Jerusalem, knocking on the gates, and and they show up with 185,000 soldiers. Jerusalem didn't stand a single chance, and the king of Assyria sends a letter to King Hezekiah, which essentially said, tomorrow, I just want you to know that we are going to destroy you and your people and the entire city, and they totally could have. Do you remember that scene? And the prophet Isaiah comes to King Hezekiah, and he goes, I just want you to know that's not true. God is going to deliver. He is going to wipe out the Assyrians tomorrow morning. So there's the promise. It's done. God is going to do this. God is going to deliver. So what does Nebuchadnezzar, or what does, sorry, stuck in Daniel here, what does King Hezekiah do? Take a nap, play around round of golf with his buddies, waiting for God to do his thing? No. After just being told that God was going to deliver, he then goes to the temple, falls on his knees, and pleads with God to do the very thing that God just told him through Isaiah that he was already going to do. Why? Because prayer is the God-given mechanism that unlocks the promises of God. Or consider, the New Testament clearly says that God will save every single one of his elect that he has chosen. That everyone whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world will be saved. And yet the New Testament still insists that we both pray for lost people and we preach to lost people. I mean, what do you do with that? I'll I'll tell you what you do. You pray for lost people and you preach to lost people because God has designed both the ends and the means to those ends. And the means to the elect getting saved is the prayers and the preaching of his people, period. Finally, Matthew 9, 37 and 38, you remember the scene. Christ is looking upon a crowd of people and he remarks that they are like sheep without a shepherd. And then he says this to his disciples, turns to them and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest that he would send out workers into his harvest. Christ did not tell us to send workers into the harvest. He told us to ask him to send workers into the harvest. Why? Because prayer is the instrument. Prayer is the means through which God conquers the powers of darkness and unbelief. And you might be thinking, Jerry, why are you telling us this? How how does this help us? What, what, What does this change? And my point is simply this. Just because God is sovereign changes neither the urgency nor the necessity to pray. Why? Because God advances his plan through the prayers of his people. You see, the question is not, the question is not how do we reconcile prayer and the sovereignty of God? That's not the question. The question is why do we not pray more than we do? 
But you see, the sovereignty of God doesn't make our prayers meaningless. The sovereignty of God gives the most meaning to our prayers. Why? Because it gives us the guarantee that our prayers for the impossible are not in vain. You see, prayer doesn't change God's plan. It doesn't change what God has ordained. Rather, God unfolds what he has ordained through the prayers of his people. And so my question is, does, do any of you have a defiant family member or cold-hearted co-worker seemingly unaffected by the gospel? Does anyone here know anyone who is trapped in Islam or Mormonism or some other cult or false religion? Do you have any scandalous family situations right now that have no seemingly, no, no seeming resolution? Are you stuck in the middle of something gruesome and awful and ugly and painful and terrible and debilitating and paralyzing and, and you just have no solution? There is just no way out of this thing because guess what? You can always pray and you must pray and you should pray because God is sovereign and that is our assurance. Which brings us to the fourth biblical description of prayer. The fourth description of prayer, number four, the blood and guts honesty of prayer. The blood and guts honesty of prayer. And what I mean is, is that the way you pray, it doesn't have to be profound. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be poetic. It just has to be real. It just has to be real. You see, there are enough brutally honest prayers recorded in the Psalms that tell us that one of the things God is after in your prayer life is not merely the quantity of your words, but the intentionality of your words. You see, what God is after is your blood and guts honesty in prayer. He's after your authenticity in prayer. In other words, God wants you to pray like he's actually there and he's real and he is a father and he is a person and he is the greatest treasure in the universe. Do you pray like that? Because I still remember the day that I discover the freedom and necessity of being blood and guts honest with God. I was in the middle of a paralyzing period of depression in my life and I couldn't delight in God. I couldn't enjoy God. I couldn't savor the Bible. I couldn't pray. I remember yelling at God. I even remember cussing at God. I mean, the, the iron cloud of depression would just never, ever lift. And, and, and I, remember, I remember asking God to kill me multiple times. I was too chicken to kill myself, but I remember distinctly asking God several times to do me a solid and just wipe me off the face of the planet. I remember those bleak, bleak, long winter days in my room, stuck and struggling, and it was, it was, it was depressing and difficult and painful and exhausting, and, and I felt so hopeless and bleak until one day slumping against the wall in my room with my Bible in my hand, turning to the book of Psalms, hoping, hoping there was just something that would cause the cloud to lift. And lo and behold, I discovered Psalm 143. You don't have to turn there, but I'll, I'll read portions of it. 
But, but the, see, the thing about the psalm is that although nothing changed right then and there in that moment, something began to happen. A crack of light began to poke through. You see, this psalm said with haunting clarity exactly what was going on in my soul. Here are a few lines from that psalm. Oh, Yahweh, hear my prayer. Give ear to my supplications in your faithfulness. Answer me in your righteousness. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has brought me in dark places like those who have long been dead. My spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is appalled within me. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul is parched like a waterless region. Answer me quickly, O Yahweh, my spirit fails. Don't hide your face from me, lest I become like those who go down to the pit. For the sake of your name, revive me in your righteousness and bring my soul out of trouble. And in that moment, it dawned on me. There is a place for desperation in the Christian life. You see, God provided in his word the very things that we can pray when our souls are in despair. It's okay to be needy and desperate and just pour out your soul to God. In fact, Psalm 62, 8 commands that you do that very thing. Oh, how freeing it was to have God in his word calling me, beckoning me to be bankrupt and on the brink of despair. Everything that I was experiencing was in the text for me to pray back to God. And God wanted no heirs, no pretensions. He just wanted me to come to grips with the fact that I was a desperate man who desperately needed his God. Or take Psalm 88. Psalm 88, which apart from the book of Lamentations is the darkest, most bleakest corner of the Bible. And you know how the Psalms are. Even the most depressing Psalm, how it, if it begins that way, usually at the end there's the slightest flicker that something is about to change and, and, and turn for good. Not this Psalm. Not this Psalm. Listen to a little sample of the anguish this writer was experiencing and tell me, tell me if you haven't been here at least once in your life. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my shout. Have you shouted at God? <laughs> For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted like those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who no one remembers. I am forsaken among the dead like those who are slaughtered, like those who go down to the pit who you do not remember anymore because you cut them off from your hand. You bring me to the lowest pit in the dark places, in the depths. My eyes fail because of grief. I call on you, Yahweh, all of the day. I stretch out my hands to you. But I cry out to you, Yahweh, in, in the morning, my prayer is before you. Why, why, O oh Yahweh, do you forsake my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? That's depressing. I mean, like five times, if you look at the psalm as a whole, like five times, he says that he felt so unbelievably discouraged and despairing that he felt like he was already dead. 
And, and yet, listen to the very last line of the psalm. The very last line of the psalm. It's really interesting. It just splutters and it grinds to a halt because the writer just can't say anything else anymore. So I'm going to translate it directly from the Hebrew. And I want you to listen for how the writer ends his psalm with nothing but chokes and gasps. You have driven far from me the friend and the neighbor the acquaintance, darkness. That's the end. That's the end of the song. Darkness. He's so overwhelmed that he's not even writing in complete sentences anymore. That is in the Bible for you. That is in the Bible for you to pray that back to God when you feel like this. And do you see how liberating this is? There's no foundation for worshiping an emotionless God worshiped by emotionless people. All All the emotions that constitute human emotions have been created by God. And the Bible models for us that there are times when it's right and appropriate to be blood and guts honest with God. Now that doesn't mean that you be irreverent or bratty or pushy. It doesn't mean that you can lecture God or you can chew him out or you can, you can treat him like he's stupid. And there's a difference between, between really spirited and angst-filled pleading with God and treating God like he's stupid. There's a difference between those things. And I admit, the line is thin in times of despair. But... I think so many Christians would be so much more freed up to pray if they knew that they don't always have to pray according to strict rules of formality. I mean, praying is not like working at a nuclear power plant where there's all these strict procedures and and rigid protocols. No, it is a throne of grace where paralyzed sinners may run to the throne to find mercy and grace in time of need. Many of you want to pray, and we all want authentic worship in our lives, but I think most people probably need to reset their expectations of what authentic worship feels like. Because when we think of worship, don't we typically think of the camp high experience? Sort of being in some emotional ecstasy. Christian art has done us little favors by the only depiction of of worship being standing on a beautiful cliff with a sunset in the background, arms raised up to the heavens. And that's legit too. But I submit to you, what was the psalm writer doing when he said, oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. I ask you, what was the psalm writer doing when he said, hear my prayer, O Yahweh. Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me. What was he doing when he was struggling and choking and gasping for air and crying out to God for help? Because he didn't feel good in those moments. But what was he doing? He was worshiping. He was worshiping in those moments because get this, the tears and the agony and the despair and the sorrow and the remorse and the just plain old asking for help in prayer is worship also. So my question is, do you puke your guts out metaphorically speaking before God? Are you blood and guts honest with him in prayer? Because you can be and you should be, and you must be. And that is liberating. And very quickly, 
Number five. The fifth biblical description is this. Number five, the persistence of prayer. The persistence of prayer. And it's true that most people, uh, many people, maybe you could say, pray for things they shouldn't pray for. And other people are way too passive and polite. Some people molest the purpose of prayer by asking for things that they love more than God. But, but oftentimes people are way too wimpy and they give up way too easily because they aren't nearly persistent enough. I'll tell you something that may have, you've never considered and maybe seems shocking to you, but God is not looking for people to be polite in prayer, but to be persistent in prayer. He's not interested in passive, passionless platitudes, but rather in persistent, prevailing, persevering prayer that pleads with him to do the impossible. In other words, God wants you to be tenacious in prayer, to be ferocious, to be relentless, because this is all over the place in the New Testament. It was in the text that Adam read, ask, seek, and knock. And yet what's interesting is those are all present tense commands, present tense imperatives, literally be asking, be seeking, be knocking, relentless, persistent, do not quit a holy stubbornness, if you will, that pleads with God. And then listen to Luke chapter 11, to prove to you that prayer is a holy nagging. Listen to what Christ says in chapter 11. It's a parable of a, of a story of a needy man who goes and knocks on a friend's door and asks him for something. And in the parable, you are the needy person knocking on the door. And God is a little bit like the person behind the door who responds. Listen carefully. Then Christ said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say to him, this is you talking, friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he, God, answers and says, Do not bother me, for the door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Okay, well, here's the punchline. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Persistent, persevering, relentless, holy, stubborn prayer that pleads with God for the things you need the most. And, and I've heard people say it all the time about a struggle that they have. You know, I've prayed about it and nothing seems to change. I've prayed about it and nothing seems to happen. So, what do you mean, so? I mean, did you hear what that is? That is, the, that is the poison of pragmatism talking. Pragmatism is the philosophy that says, do what works best and discard the rest. And so implicit in the statement is because they've prayed about it once or twice or 10 times or two weeks or 10 years because there isn't, doesn't seem to be the answer. Prayer obviously doesn't work. If you want results, you need to try something else. And you see, thing that people need to see is that the process of prayer is just as important as the answer to prayer. 
The holy marathon of persistent prayer is just as important as the finish line of answered prayer. You see, just because God doesn't answer you right away like some Harry Potter magic spell doesn't mean that he's not listening or that he does not care. That's not what that means. Rather, the point is that God wants you to sweat in the holy marathon of persistent prayer because he wants to show you something profound about himself. Think about it. Why 10 plagues? Why 10 plagues? Remember the 10 plagues got unleashed on Egypt? Why 10? Why not just skip to the last one and get this thing over with? Why drag this thing out over 10 long plagues? Because, because God wanted to show Israel something about himself. His sovereign power, his sovereign control was more effectively learned over the long haul than just blowing the whole operation up at once. He wanted to show them something about himself. You see, The seeming silence of prayer does not mean that God is not listening. Rather, it's his means of helping you see that you need him more than the thing for which you're asking. So the question is, is there something in your life about which you need to be persistent? Is there something in your life about which you need to cry out day and night, something impossible, something debilitating, something difficult, something paralyzing, something unattainable and unachievable by human means that needs the sovereign intervention of God. The Bible is clear. Don't despair. Don't give up. Ask, seek, knock, plead, beg, and nag. Because God is not after your courtesy or your politeness, but your constancy and perseverance. I close with this. We pray not merely because that's just what Christians do, but because prayer is the means through which he does the absolutely impossible. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we don't have all of this figured out. There are still mysteries here and and Lord, there are so many things legitimately asked with good motives, at least the best motives that we can muster and we ask and you do not answer in the way that we really think should work out. And, and so, Lord, I just ask for a spirit of faith, a growing faith among us that would trust you, that would trust you during the holy marathon of persistent prayer, that we would sweat in prayer as we look to you and cry out to you and ask you to intervene and deliver. And so, Lord, help us to be prayers. Help us to pray with urgency. Help us to pray with passion. Help us to pray in hope. Help us to pray, oh Lord, knowing, knowing that you are working all things out exactly as you designed. And prayers are a part of the process. They are instrumental to the process. Oh Lord, I plead with you for this church that you would unleash a movement of prayer beyond anything that we've seen. Help us be encouraged. Help us be passionate. Help us be urgent and desperate and needy before you in prayer. Work through this church and help make us be a healthy church that prays in such a way that the only explanation is a sovereign God doing the supernatural. And in the mighty name of Christ we pray. Amen.